Welcome to the Evolution Exchange Nordics podcast. At Evolution, we are committed to helping people and Nordics tech organizations realize their potential. Our goal is to deliver deep relationships with individuals, building trust to make doing business easier. I am Shania Olajukovic from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, and today I am your host. Today, I am joined by Emil Axelson, who is the Senior Senior Interaction Dan Edit, who is the Senior Interaction Designer at Electrolux. Marcus Jansen, who is the Head of Service Design at STIM. Daniel Streetsberg, who is the Co-Founder and Design Director at Roche Studio. And Anin Bernal-Ramos, who is the Design Lead at Datia, to discuss Designing your day, achieving work-life balance in UX UI. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room as usual and start with some introductions. So I'd like to know who you are, what you do, and if possible, what your biggest passion is currently. So Emil, do you want to kick us off? I can. Um, yes, so my name is Emil. Uh, I work as a senior interaction designer at Electrolux. And more specifically, I work with Ovens at the moment. And my biggest passion at the moment. Well, I'm really looking forward for the snowboard season to start. Uh, I haven't been doing that for... I didn't go last season, so I really want to go to the mountains. Amazing. Great. Marcus, do you want to go next? Yes, uh, my name is Marcus Jansson. Uh, I'm the head of service design at STEAM. Yeah, amazing. Great. Daniel, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Daniel Svitsberg. Uh, I run a design studio in, in Stockholm called Ross Studio, where we work with uh, strategic branding. And apart from that, I'm also a designing UX uh, consultant, uh, working with uh, various companies of various sizes. Uh, my passion right now for the last year has all been about my uh, home and living situation. We've been renovating and stuff, so it kind of occupies most of my spare time. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I would have to say that. Yeah, amazing. Great. Anna, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, hello. Uh, I am Anna Bernal. I am leading the design of a digital tool called Dadia. Uh, it's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, it's for investors to deal with sustainability challenges. Uh, so that's where I'm mostly focused on. Uh, so by the topic I'm working with, I'm starting to learn uh, some other facts and get some more personal interest in sustainability, which I am going to connect with my passion right now. Uh, so I really like to learn uh, some something else around that as well as uh, continue to draw, which is something I really like to do, draw on painting. Amazing. Great. Thank you, everyone. So now that we've established a context to each of you, let's move on to discuss the topic in focus. So you have all brought a question or statement on designing your day, achieving work-life balance in UX UI. So as usual, I'll work around the room asking each of you to pose your question and the reasons behind it. So each of you will have the opportunity to give your take on the situation as well. So let's start with Emil. So Emil brought the question, the border between work and life has changed. Work became more into our life. What did that do to the balance? 
What effect did this do to the culture? Did we get closer or more distance to our colleagues? Now that we are more inside each other's home and life. So, Emil, where did this question come from? Yeah, now after these two years, two, three years of working remotely and from home, uh, I find it quite interesting that we are inside people's home more and in their lives more as well, like in everyday life and much more closer to people's routines. And we have a more flexible schedule. Um, but for me, when I came back to Sweden, for example, I came right in the pandemic, so I didn't have anyone to hang out with free time. So it was quite lonely. So I was, came there working from home and then not seeing any colleagues. And actually missed going into the office. Uh, in the beginning, it was quite nice, but I was also forced in the beginning because I was in Colombia and I couldn't leave the apartment at all. And then I actually missed seeing people. Uh, so I think it's an interesting balance that the company has to face now. Also having like a minimum going into the office. And yeah, I'm interested in hearing like your experience of the yeah the whole remote or being in the office and what's the benefits uh, now that we've been in it for a while hi everyone this is chris bennett here the knowledge managing director here at evolution we're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data, product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Yeah, great question. So who wants to kick us off? I can start because, because this is, uh, I thought it was interesting because I actually did this transition deliberately <laughs> uh, on purpose uh, two years ahead of COVID. Uh, given my life situation. And that was basically that we got twins and, and panicked. <laughs> we really didn't know what to expect. Um, uh, but once you got into that, I'm, I'm sure people with kids can, can relate at some level, uh, to, to the sort of life changing experience that it is. Uh, but I, I decided then to, to take this step to, to, uh, uh, sort of uh, be my own boss and, and manage my own time and, and work remotely a lot and so on. So when COVID hit, it was really interesting. I, I sort of became like an observant more uh, and, and noticed that, uh, as you mentioned, you you got uh, forced to 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 sort of work that way. Uh, and I thought it was really interesting to sort of see how how people transitioned into that when they didn't get to do the choice themselves. Um, and, and what I sort of noticed was that like when the previously clear boundaries between like your professional duties and your private duties, because obviously people have private duties that they take care of already. You know, can we go to the dentist or pick up kids or whatever? But it feels like all of that just melted into like a 24 hour <laughs> bucket that you then had sort of needed to, to somehow rethink like if I've if it's not during these hours I'm at the office, 
if it's all like I wake up in the same place where I work, where I go to sleep, then it's sort of the entire day of 24 hours sort of becomes the playing field almost. And it was interesting to see like how people needed to rethink it. Um, but I think, I think at the same time with COVID, it was like a global event. So it was while it was sort of this global solidarity and communion going on because everyone was in the same boat. But at the same time, people were forced to like look inward towards themselves and find out what, what worked for them uh, and, and figure out their everyday. So I think that I think it actually had like a positive impact on at least on like tolerance and acceptance and and understanding the preferences of your colleagues and coworkers and so on that you sort of uh, maybe were I'm not saying people were judge, judgmental before but but there uh, if I remember correctly when there was like remote uh, meetings for example it was kind of stiff and a little bit awkward uh, and I think if you fast forward by to the end of COVID people were basically sitting in their slack pants sometimes. And <laughs> I think, uh, I think that was probably one of the positive impacts that I think it raised the, the tolerance and acceptance towards uh, people's preferences, I guess. That would be my observation. Yeah, I agree with that also. And I think it's also interesting what you say with people having like their normal clothes and being more relaxed and looking inwards, because also I think people got better at communicating like being mm. like in a video call before it was very stiff and it was but people learned to listen a little bit better i think yeah i can chime in i for me the, the initial like experience of covid was that I, I actually got more productive i felt in some sense because all the like extra hours of commuting and all those things fell away and um, especially when you like like your the work assignments that you have and you feel passionate about your the things you do at, at your job it kind of like was a, a beneficial factor to be able to do it more um then on the other hand it kind of like <laughs> in the end it became a problem for me because i had to like really like try to find the balance between what what am i what is my free time and when do i have it because there was no like physical boundaries in it when you were always working from home mm. so i think that's the part and another experience was that was that i felt that a lot of the collaboration became it had to become more had to become more effective uh, and we used uh, figma as a tool for that and you had to like facilitate the communication with, with like visual aids when you were lacking like a whiteboard in a room or or just like the the vibe of talking to somebody to feeling like feeling what they're saying um so from that perspective i felt also that the actual collaboration in some cases became better from working at, like remotely because you had to be more precise in what you were saying and how you were saying it and and how you visualize it in like different tools um but like from where i'm i'm, I'm currently i i feel that i have to have like the office as a since i have small kids at home and, and such i need to have the the physical break between where i, I do my work work and where, where i do my private life and uh, I don't think that it would be like like wholesome for me to continue working from home, at least not in the setup that I have currently. So that's that's my two cents. Yeah, I I would like to add. I've also been working remote for a while before the pandemic because of the tool I was working for, uh, which was for remote collaboration before COVID, which is Mural. 
so that helped help me to get into that uh, kind of work uh, life uh, style. Uh, so so it wasn't that of a surprise, and I also find myself more concentrated while working from home. But one thing I really miss about having a space office, and I am currently remote now because most of my team is in Stockholm right now, and I am in Madrid, Spain, uh, is that I don't get to talk too much with people who is not working with me in my team directly. Uh, mm -hmm. That I had in the office space when I, for example, stood up and shared a coffee, uh, and those like uh, small talks that you get to have in the corridor or having a lunch together, those sort of casual spaces that gives you more context about your colleagues' life or something else that you don't get to have in a meeting where, as you said, Marcus, because we are super precise on meetings, on online meetings, which also helps for reducing the meetings times. Uh, I also remember having to go to a bunch of meetings in presence with about a lot of people that probably wasn't that interested or relevant for the topic of it. Now it's like more, it's easier to, to get to find the people you need to and be more like smart with the time usage. Um, yeah, and, and also I, one, one thing I like about the uh, cameras and uh, being able to sneak a little bit into each other's home spaces from the video camera is that if you if they sit in front, for example, of a library or a, or a living room, you get to see what are they reading or what are their uh, cultural interests by the picture they have hanging on their wall. So it's also a different perspective, I would say. Yeah, amazing. Emil, do you have anything you want to add now you've heard what everyone thinks to your question and their answers? Um, yeah, well, to add to what Anna was saying, I think that's the thing that doesn't work is the small talk. Like a lot of, you try a lot to have, oh, let's have a digital fika <laughs> and have a coffee and stuff, but that never flows naturally. Like it's really hard to make that work. Yeah. Like the the having a workshop and having meetings, presentation, all that you can do because you have a very strict agenda and a topic to discuss. But when it comes to getting to know one another, it's really hard, I feel, in, in that. Uh... So one thing that we did here, actually, in Adaptive Looks was to have like, and forming kind of like a... Um, a process to everyone meeting because we also spread out all around the world to when we start a project or something that at least in the beginning of the project everyone meet each other so they can like get a face and you can like okay that's that's how high someone is like to get perspective and also get to know a little bit outside of work and that really improved like the communication mm -hmm. in the project as well yeah, that's really interesting. I, I've noticed also since since COVID and, and people starting being able to go back to work that it was almost like an event to go to the office <laughs> for a lot of people. So what was previously something you just took for granted became sort of like a highlight of the week almost. So uh, I, I remember talking to, to uh, some colleagues at a project I was working on and they were like, well, Monday till Tuesday, I'm going to be working. And then on Wednesday, I'll go to the office <laughs> where I'll have lunch and fika and fill up my battery with, you know, social energy. <laughs> and then on, on Thursday and Friday, I'll go back into crunch mode again. I thought that was pretty funny that like all of a sudden 
it was more of a more of a more of an event, like almost like a strategically placed event throughout the week. When do I need to fill up my social energy, and then and then they sort of shape the the rest of the week surrounding that. Yeah, that would be really interesting to see, like a study on that. If you have that uh, more as a fixed schedule, the whole office goes in, and in the middle of the week, everyone goes in and just be social. Like mm. you're not allowed to book any meetings, and then see the see how yeah the stress levels and also the efficiency at work actually change maybe then you work harder tuesday monday tuesday and thursday friday the every week between otherwise i don't know i w- I'm, would be interesting to see to play around with that and how you because another subject i'm interested in is like the creative flow and how you get into to mm. that and because actually, since you need some time to actually enter the creative flow and to be efficient, and also you need the social part as well. So yeah, it's a very tricky topic, I think, uh, to manage. But very interesting to discuss. Yeah, definitely. Amazing. Great questions. Great answers as well. Amazing. So let's move on to Marcus. So... Marcus, the question that you brought to the podcast was, how does the culture within design teams or agencies influence an individual's work-life balance? What steps can leaders take to cultivate a culture that respects and encourages balance, especially given the iterative and often intense nature of UX projects? So Marcus, where did this question come from? Yeah, so I'm I'm quite new managing a team of uh both actually designers and, and product people. And uh, working with that team, uh, me, myself, I had like a burnout syndrome two years ago, which I've recuperated. And uh, several people in my team actually experienced the same thing. So I'm trying to like find the balance of where, how much is enough basically for doing good work. Is it the eight hours a day or how should you structure it? And also the, I mean, when you work like from, a, say, a, a generalist point of view in design, there can be several different steps. You can be doing user research one day and another day you might be working in Figma and doing like things that are better done by yourself. How do you balance those activities and when should you do them? We, for instance, have realized that you maybe shouldn't have two research projects at the same time because, because it might become too overwhelming to handle both. You might want to like balance those things. So, so from my perspective, it's, it's a lot about trying to find like, what's the sweet spot of like culture? What's the, uh, what should we do with ambitions and how, how hard should we push for, for things to get done? But also like, how do you structure your work? How do you do different tasks at different times? Well, I, I'm really interested about the cultural part. Um, so, so I, um, I was working at an agency for, for over a decade and the last couple of years I was, uh, the head of design for a design team there. And, and what I remember from, so now I've been, uh, doing my own thing with my partner colleague for, uh, for the last seven years or so. But from what I remember from working in an agency it was it's sort of like us against the world culture, uh, at least in the agency, uh, part of it. So there was this sort of constant sense of competing as, as I remember it. It was you were competing with other agencies, you were competing about clients, you were competing 
you know, about projects, sometimes even within the agency, <laughs> could be creatives, especially had a tendency to, to compete a lot. Uh, but it could also be like competing for budgets. Could be it was a lot of competing going on, uh, but it was still a sense of like being in the same boat. So yeah, I also remember it being this sense of no one wanting to let the team down. So uh, and obviously that adds some pressure uh, because uh, if if everyone else is uh, uh, trying so hard to perform uh, and and compete, then. Uh, like, what does it say about me if I don't, for example, if everyone else is working overnight to meet up this deadline, who am I if I don't do that? So it sort of adds on to, to that uh, cultural pressure. So what what I tried to do, this is just my own experience, but what I tried to do was remove the prestige from the team uh, mm-hmm. and, and uh, encourage transparency instead. Uh, so I, I was trying to, like, create a happy team first and foremost, and then use maybe, because I do think that uh, per a, a culture of, of uh, performance and competing, it, it does, it, there's a reason why, why people do that, because it does help your personal development in terms of your skill set and, and your experiences and whatnot for good and bad. You know, you'll, you'll get both good and bad experiences from, from being part of that. But I, I don't think that it should be a culture. I think it should be more of a spice. So, like, if you have a culture that encourages, like, uh, happiness and, and, and people liking to go to work and, and enjoying spending time with the people in the project, the happier they are, the more sort of uh, likely they are to respond to, to uh, performance and, and competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of... Uh, but if you have a... So, I think that the norm should be, you know, happiness and stability. And then you can add pressure, if you will, uh, or performance uh, as, as more of a spice when you feel as a leader that your team is ready for it. Uh, so, so I think yeah, as a leader, it's probably a matter of fingerspitzing, you feel, <laughs> to, to try to try to have a, a good sense of what's uh, what's the status of the team right now. What are they? Uh, are they ready for this if I apply pressure or, or what, what do they need right now to be able to perform? Uh, that, that was my takeaway from those years, at least. Uh, not easy. God knows. <laughs> <laughs> Super tricky. Uh, but, but that was at least, uh, sort of my, my mindset, uh, with, with that challenge at the time. Yeah. I really like the analogy of like a spice. That- kind of puts puts it in the right perspective cool yeah i could i can continue i would agree to to that so like i did similar when i had a team as well was more to creating a safe environment so mistakes are okay to do like they are welcome to do try it and if it doesn't work then we then we work on it and solve it um so that's like the the feeling I tried to do in the team. Like it was okay. Here's a safe place for you to fail, mm-hmm. or that is a place mm-hmm. for you to to uh, perform. Like do what you feel you can do, and then we take it from there. Uh, and then when it comes to have like a different a lot of tasks at the same time, what I find as well there, I also get burned out. <laughs> But that was because of working 
and a lot of different projects at the same time uh, with different tasks. So it was all the time switching to another mindset, switching, switching, switching all day, and like 30 minutes here, 30 minutes there, 30 minutes there. And it takes such a lot of, a lot of energy to do that switch all the time. Uh, but I do find it okay to work like maybe on two research projects at the same time, but then maybe have a, to plan it in, in a better flow. So you do like one task in one week, maybe, or whatever, and you do some research and then you can maybe you send it out to get input or reviews, and then you can work on the other project one week or even half week or something like that. So to get some more time to deep dive into the subject and because that's what I feel I need also to get the good solutions or the good ideas. It takes some time to to get there. And mm-hmm. also, I mean, even with research also to find the insights, you need to be in that mind space for a while before I can, ah, oh, wait, I connect all the dots and then I can take out the mm-hmm. racing from the bun, so to speak. But so I think uh, that's the that's the most learning I've got from my personal life or work life is to as long as I divide it and can have like one day even day by day to focus on different tasks, then I get way more done. It's like it takes half day to just to get in and then the last one and a half, two hours of the day, you get everything done, like a lot of good results from it, mm-hmm. but way more than you would from one week. How do, how do you feel that um, like for... I understand, and I totally agree with what you're saying. How do you coordinate in a team then that you know, then you how you plan your day basically, and if you are dependent upon other people delivering stuff, and how do you get those things to do? Because I think like the when your schedule gets like hacked up into little thirty minute pieces of different things, it's often depending upon being dependent on other people to deliver things. Yeah. Um, and if you're just working by yourself, then it's quite easy to manage your schedule. And and that was also part of me, like getting back from burnout was that I got total independence over my schedule in order to get back, basically. But now when you start working with other people, it's kind of like getting hacked up again. How yeah, does that I think I think there's just to schedule it like as the roadmap. What needs? To, okay, I need this to be able to that to do that, and then plan those people like you will start working on that this week, and you will do something else in the beginning of the week. Mm. Then so so it delivers to each other, not you to start at the same time, because then it will be like oh, fifty percent of both of them working a little bit, but hacked up instead of. Okay, no, you are not going to work on this at all in the beginning of the week. Only this person, so they can deliver in the end of the week for you. Yeah. So it takes a little bit more of a mic, almost micromanaging, um, but being very clear of what the theme that people should work on to make it easier to plan it. Like it's very tricky, but so the, that's how I try to manage it. It puts a lot of like re- responsibility on the manager in order to be able to distribute work according to getting the big picture done, basically. Yeah, yeah. But I think also um, uh, from from my experience is that sometimes when, for example, if you ask uh, one of your employees to estimate something, that's one of the classics, isn't it? <laughs> estimate how how long this will take uh, or whatnot, or or. Uh, 
I've planned you for this much time or depending on, on can go, go different ways. But uh, what I noticed then was that uh, some employees tend to uh, only estimate exactly the amount of time that should be needed for them to solve the task. Almost like it's, they don't really plan for, or there were two things that I tried to encourage it. One is like plan for momentum because momentum is goal uh, with what we do. If you mm-hmm. hit that, if you, if you gain momentum, that can be hours, days worth of work that you all of a sudden magically sort of pull off in, in an afternoon just because you gain momentum. So, so I, I, I try to encourage the team to plan for momentum. Like, sure, you, maybe you need this amount of hours to, to pull this off or, or sort of reach the minimum expected level of, of output. <laughs> uh, but how much time would you like to have to gain momentum? Like, what would that look like? Uh, because it has such benefits if it, if it works out because the, the person will be feel extremely proud coming out of it and, and feeling like, holy shit, what I just did saved me Friday. Like mm-hmm. all of a sudden, uh, Friday looks kind of, kind of nice, actually. <laughs> uh, so, so it has a lot of positive effects. And I think it has to do with the pressure mentioned earlier that sometimes when you ask an employee, like, how much time do you need? And, and so on, they kind of give you the answer. They find the sweet spot with like, how much time do I actually think it's going to take? How much time do they expect me to say? <laughs> and then they sort of say the in between. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think a good start is to encourage them to, to go for like, how much time do you want uh, to, to be the most productive and gain as much momentum as possible? And then if that's just, you know, crazy, then, well, at, at least then you have a starting point to start discussing and, and see where you, where you can land in the end. But um, that's just uh, one one reflection from from previous uh, encounters with uh, lo- beloved colleagues of mine. <laughs> yeah, I think one 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 task that usually gets underestimated is is uh, aligning everyone's pages and expectations. It's like yeah. a, taking for granted what others thinking or might be expecting to receive with something that is not that common to be discussed and is something like super important and also there are i think there are two things that you can expect as a manager to be unblocked if you're waiting for someone else's job is one what is the minimum that i can get from this person or what is the best i can have from from this person right so when you were uh, bringing the question on on where's the sweet spot on how much time should we allocate into research versus figma I also believe that there are more people into Figma and there are more people into research. So probably there's another way to look at it. So depending on the profile, also depending depending on the cultural fit that the, this person gets along with the organization you're working with. Not yeah. all people is interested in product, for example, and they are more into agencies and, and advertising design contributions and more like shipping designs and finishing it there. And then others who like to embrace situations and embrace feedback and ask for that and continue to change what they have delivered on previous um, projects, for example. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great question, Marcus, and great answers and great advice and insights as well. Great. Amazing. So let's move on to Daniel. 
So Daniel, the question that you brought to the podcast was, when mentoring junior talent, I've noticed a correlation between their work-life balance and the imposter syndrome. It is, a sim- is it simply a consequence of their high ambitions or unhealthy symptoms of young designers' current state of affairs? So Daniel, where did this question come from? So basically, like when I've been consulting at companies of various sizes, um, then most of the time I end up working with their uh, UI and UX uh, designers that they that they have on board. And I no- started noticing uh, like how a lot of their time is spent on internally justifying their work for their colleagues of various disciplines. And and when I sat down to talk with them, with the designers, and especially the ones that hasn't worked in the business for, for that many years, maybe, it's hard for me not to notice like the sense of the imposter syndrome uh, in between the lines. Uh, and because several of them seem to feel like constantly questioned, sometimes on the border of being mistrusted. Uh, and that's obviously, it's not the most fun conversations to have. <laughs> Uh, of course. Um, but the result has been that they're carrying the work with them uh, outside of work. And, and sometimes it's just mentally, which would mean that they're thinking about it when they're cooking their dinner or, or whatever it may be. And sometimes it's actually them sitting in front of their laptop late at night, uh, either because they try to like catch up on the hours they lost on internally <laughs> arguing for their cause. Um, or it could be uh, that they that they um, yeah just can't stop thinking about it. And when I try to like uh, reflect on on why this is, what I tried to what I sort of ended up in is that like not everyone in a company is a is a manager, and not everyone in a company is a developer, and not everyone is a creative director or strategist. But everyone is a user of digital interfaces, and that somehow seems to be why. Uh, that people feel entitled to question the UX and UI work because they uh, seem to think that, you know, I am a user of digital interfaces, so I have a lot of experiences and it should apply on product X. Uh, and uh, I, I just can't, like, uh, it's, it's a very interesting thing because on one hand, I'm like, well, they're right. <laughs> they are potential users a lot of the time. But on the other hand, uh, I'm, I can't help but feel frustrated for, for these young designers that just want to practice what they've learned uh, and, and, and keep feeling uh, that someone, people are trying to like shoot them down all of the time. And those people are actually their colleagues <laughs> uh, sometimes. Uh, so I, I can't help but think like, is this a healthy state of affairs or is it actually a reflection of a reality where UX design will become a more political um, and revolve more around, you know, uh, arguing for your cause, justifying your work, even for your colleagues before the prototype has even, you know, went into the hands of the actual user because they tend to get stuck. That's the other bad part. Uh, the, the prototypes get stuck internally in internal discussions before the UX or UI designer even gets the chance to put it in the hands of a user, test mm. it, get the user feedback, gain insights, do the next iteration and so on. Uh, 
so I definitely think this is this is like a problem um, that is going on right now. And, and when I think back when I started out like ages ago, uh, there wasn't there was barely something called user experience. <laughs> uh, and and uh, I feel that when we worked at that time, we had a lot of trust and we had a lot of uh, people with high expectations, you know, wanting to see what we would do. Uh, and then they were curious to see the process and see what came out of it and so on. But right now, I feel that the process is getting interrupted, and uh, these uh, junior talents that maybe hasn't that much experience, so they don't have the same toolkit to sort of protect themselves and their work. Um, yeah. Long story short, I think you, I think you see where I'm getting at. So I just really wanted to, to hear. If you've noticed something similar, if you can relate with this, and and what do you think about it? Yeah, Music. first, I don't think it's something new. <laughs> I think it's always been, uh, or for me at least, that's my experience. And for me, also, when I started, it was very frustrating. And I mean, we're in a sensitive business in the sense of we are creating something, and it's a little bit kill your darlings, and we are putting a lot of like. Uh, pride in what we do and what we create and, <clears throat> and then it can be very tough to hear feedback on it so one that is the experience to like to be able to distance yourself a little bit from me from me as a person to what i created but then what i found is just the communication like really to establish like a good relationship with the people you you present for and as early as possible to pe make people part of the process as early as possible. And because if you do that, then you can also show your expertise along the way and kind of guide people. When I feel when you presented in the end, if you worked months for something and then you present or weeks and then you present, you have a lot to present and then people have a lot of opinions and it's like it's a shock also for people seeing it it's like oh i haven't seen this before but no oh, i don't like it i'm and then opinions start to come so it's i mean it's super hard to guide uh like junior designers in that's more than experience of okay you need to communicate everything you do in an early stage but also create that relationship with people also have a distance to what you what you do try to separate yourself from you as a person to the values actually have a value as a person it's not only in your designs like your designs yeah, or something 100 <laughs> like, that i can really relate to that that because i i also feel like uh they have invested so much of their themselves into their uh new profession because you know they're they especially when they're sort of fresh into the business and they have all this enthusiasm so, uh, so uh, I, I can definitely see that. I agree. And um, I, I think that one one very important thing to consider when you accept a design role is to know that everyone is a collaborator, or at least everyone should be involved, even if they are not designers. If you don't take that as a as a as a step to begin with is probably going to be a very hard path to continue to work with because especially on interaction interactive devices is not you the final user who is going to be 
playing around with it. So I guess it's the opposite. Is the more the more you can bring into your process, the more valuable will be the final outcome that you can provide. I would I would like to to tell that to any young designer who is probably dealing with this right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially because design is very messy and most of the process is messy. That there is where we get our hands on, right? Then to then we if we end up delivering very clean and easy and minimalistic devices or interfaces, it's probably because the process was very, very, very tough. And there were many questions around those. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think like one aspect of of one aspect of it is that, as you said, everybody is entitled to an opinion. Uh, as you said, because everybody is a user, and I, I don't think the equivalence for say maybe a lawyer or an accountant i don't think that they would get the same feedback because they're like domains where people don't actually know and they're specialized in their subject matter and in a sense i would say that i mean designers are also subject matter experts but um, people don't really see it since they're the users so so they will get a lot of more opinions but as you said anna they also need to get a lot of opinions in order to know that they're finding like the right design and i think also like another aspect is for me at least is that when you design something for other human beings to use you will be be more aware of that the thing you're doing might fail so you might be aware of that the user might not be able to do the thing they're supposed to do and when you work with other like roles in an organization they might not be as as connected to the user in that sense so they don't have to carry the weight of making another human being disappointed i don't think that you walk around thinking like this all the time but it might be an aspect that like affects you and so i think that's also like part of like contributing to the imposter syndrome that you you get more more acutely aware of how the thing you do might get like treated in the real world basically um and another thing that I've been thinking about, you can like trigger the thought tr- for me here, Daniel, is that also for junior designers, since our like design tools today are so uh, easy to use, it's so easy to use Figma in order to create a really high fidelity prototype. But if you're kind of like junior at what you're doing, it might look really good, but you're not quite sure that it actually fills the purpose that it's supposed to do. And I, I'm since I'm, I'm quite new in the design field, I think you, Emil, had like a longer experience. But my perception is that if you go back a couple of years, maybe you had to work your way up to some sort of like skill level before you could actually make prototypes that looked that good. And that would be also like a transitioning phase for from being junior to being more qualified at what you do. That wouldn't have, I mean, you can still feel imposter syndrome, but it might might be that the the time from be coming out and delivering value that looks good is quite short now. I don't know if that resonates with you guys, but for me, it does a lot. Actually, sorry, I can. <laughs> but with, uh, I think we skipped a step a lot of times in the process now, since as you're saying, the tools are so good. So you jump into doing perfect UI right away. Mm. So you miss a lot of the process. Also there, you don't include people in your process. Like you go straight to doing a perfect UI and you get 
so much feedback instead of dividing it up in okay let's start with a sketch and or start with what's the value we want to create here then we create mm -hmm. the, we start with the, begin with the flow and then with the wireframes and then then everyone has been along like giving feedback along the way and once you present the ui it's not going to be so many so much feedback on it more than oh it looks really nice now because people feel that they've been part of that process and i think it's a really important part that we are skipping a lot of the times now because it's so easy to make nice looking uis yeah but yeah. but i believe that probably one of the things that is probably causing this also kind of, uh, sort of competitivity among the 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 junior designers in is on thinking like probably how's the best way to learn a tool and i think i don't know the first designer who is not dealing every day with the updates that the tools are launching and getting yeah. to learn the new features you're yeah. laughing now because that's true and and, <laughs> and, I, and i hear about that super in, in in everyone even in very experienced designers because we have to deal with those as well as we continue to deal with the other challenges the business challenges or the topic challenges that our company or organization having to work with and at the beginning of this year i received like a I, I'm not going to lie, like 300 CVs from graphic designers. We were looking for someone to help us in our branding uh, with some uh, skills on UI. Uh, and more than half of those were exactly the same format that probably they learned in a bootcamp, you know, like the personas and like the, the, like the right way to present the portfolio but but then it was super hard to tell like who is the person behind that right is this the person i want to i want to be working with uh, in my design organization because yes they can mark all the checks but like i don't get to know like what's their problem thinking like and probably that's much more valuable when if they have to defend an idea as you were uh, trying to bring to this with your question daniel i think mm. was the the your question yeah, I think, but exactly. So one, one, I, I really like yeah, your thoughts uh, here. Um, uh, one, one thing I, I thought that pops up uh, listening to it is like, because um, if I look back on myself, like the best learnings I got was the ones that I experienced myself. So, and the harsher they were, the better <laughs> almost. But uh, I, I still feel like there's something has happened. Um, the, the climate has shifted a little bit. I think it's because uh ux has become so um uh, it's so uh, it's much more based on uh, research and facts and reports and and uh, all of that stuff nowadays which is pretty much open out there for anyone to read uh you don't you don't have to study ux to to consider yourself an expert uh if you're for example if you're a, if you're a front-end developer and you have an interest in ux and ui it's very easy for you to get a hold of uh, of parts of that knowledge and and then bring that into the next discussion with your uh, fellow UX designer. And I feel that those are the kinds of like uh, discussions where things tend to get out of hand sometimes, at least uh, in terms of efficiency for the project, uh, because it's it's hours spent uh, on on uh, uh, talking about stuff that maybe maybe it doesn't motivate the cost that it actually carries with it when when uh, two three four people are arguing about a button for example so 
So uh, I, I, I just think it's interesting. Um, maybe UX designers, fresh UX designers should somehow, maybe in school, I don't know, uh, get better prepared for, for uh, A, like how do you present your work? Uh, how do you set the scope? for for or the scene for the ones you're presenting to so they don't draw to drastic conclusions out of what they're actually looking at um, and especially with the high fidelity prototypes because i agree like now that we have design systems in figma sometimes it's much easier to just you know drag and drop uh, components uh, into something that looks finished instead of doing the the wireframe uh, and so so it i can see why that why that happens uh, but then sort of the responsibility, I guess, lands on the on the UX designer to, before presenting their work, sort of setting the scene, like, this is what to expect and not to expect. This is sort of what I want feedback on and what I don't want feedback on based on what you're going about to see, maybe. But but also I'm thinking like the, the sort of toolkit uh, that you get with experience of like uh, in a conversation where you get a lot of feedback or criticism, like when, when you've got experience, you can sort of quite early identify what's going on uh, and be like, okay, so this is one of those moments. And then you have have a, a tool to, to handle the situation. Uh, I'm thinking like maybe that should be part of like UX education to, to actually be able to handle. Uh, because I, th- I think they get prepared for like maybe a criticism and feedback from, from end users or from clients and so on, but I'm not sure, or I don't know, but, but maybe they should put more emphasis on the internal, <laughs> the internal politics of creating great UX. Um, I don't know. In hmm. my, in my previous job, we were several designers from different teams and it was, it was like om- almost mandatory as a part of the design process to show different options for the same problem and put them all together in a whiteboard and invite very different collaborators to leave feedback in the comments, even if that feedback wasn't synchronously. synchronously. Uh, so those threads were also very interesting to see like what, were the, what was the conclusion by bringing together different opinions. Mm. And also, like, there are some frameworks that sometimes are, are are helpful for these, like, job stories. And then when you want to focus on something, like, let's focus on this job here. And I think one of the of the tasks that need, needs to be led by any designer, even if they, if they are not leading designers, is to guide th- those feedback points or to guide in what, what stage of the design process are you at. Yeah. I'm um, um, being re- they're responsible to putting that into the next one. And I think one good exercise to do is, as you say, to bring the designs out from Figma. Okay, you can't present in Figma, you have to present it somewhere else. Yeah. That forces you to actually do a story because you can't just paste them there and do nothing. It's like, okay, what are these designs? What are they stand for? Why did you do it like this? Because it's easy when you have it in Figma. Yeah, exactly. And like, because when you have it in Figma, it's easy to send a Here's the link to the documents. You can mm-hmm. go around and look as much as you want. You can do comments, but zoom in. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like a big part of being a designer is doing presentations. Like it's a, yeah. 
um, PowerPoint skills are very valuable to have. Yeah, amazing. Great, great question. And great points and great answers. Amazing. So lastly, but by no means least, we'll go to Anna. So Anna's question, which she brought to the podcast was, given the rapid automation of various skills, what unique contributions do you believe designers can offer that machines cannot? So Anna, where did this question come from? Yeah, I know that the topic of this podcast is work-life balance. So I was wondering, like with this, uh, I, I don't know, hearing a lot about FOMO and other other uh, words, popular words, probably overused lately, but on AI and other automation and currently hot topics, uh, I wanted to ask you or your teams, if you're aware about your motivations behind continue to work on design, especially after some years for most of us on it, uh, probably in the 90s or even before many design decisions were taken by engineers. And, and then it was in the last decade that our job became more valuable and we started to get bit, better paid and so on. But now we see that many of the things that we learned how to do are now like super easy to be made with just a prompt. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. What what do you think that what's something we could continue to to bring here to the table? Yeah, great question. Who wants to kick us off? I love this. I think this is super current. Like this is uh, spot on <laughs> what I think is going on in a lot of people's minds right now. To me, uh, this is, you know, disclaimer, this is completely based on my own experience. But uh, I, I, I've already started working a lot with uh, some of these AI, both in terms of uh, writing text, but also in terms of generating graphics with mid-journey and so on. And what I've noticed is AI is still so extremely reluctant to have subjective opinions or make decisions. It just doesn't want to. And it, it tries uh, in any way possible to avoid making decisions. Uh, so I think the first thing would be actually making decisions. Um, and I think in, in some terms, it's a luxury because what they do, what AI can provide us with is several different variants and examples of the same sort of concept. Uh, and then sort of the devil is in the details. And, and if you have the experience and the, and the know-how uh, or in the strategic mind to, to sort of see what's right uh, then all of a sudden you saved a lot saved a lot of time uh, all you had to do was sort of make the decision and and, and move on um, but i also think another part is the sort of being irrational <laughs> because i think a lot of the when i see these ai generated designs i think some of them are too rational uh, and i just know if i show that to a human some of them are going to have remarks that doesn't make any sense because if you've ever done like user testing, you will know that humans are extremely irrational. Uh, there is no like straight line that everyone follows, uh, and it can be remarks on on silly levels uh, in those kinds of tests. Uh, and as a human, we can understand those that irrational behavior. Uh, I've tried to you know bounce uh, these kinds of concepts with AI, and those discuss discussions turn out pretty weird. Uh, actually, seems like it doesn't kind of get it 
uh, the, the irrational. It, it, it's more, it, it sort of just says like, yes, humans can be irrational, uh, <laughs> but, but doesn't really sort of get it. Um, so I think, I think it's, you know, making decisions, being rational, being, you know, genuine. Uh, I don't think I, sort of AI can understand why we cringe or laugh or, or are disgusted by <laughs> something that we see. Uh, you know, there's this classic example of the Obama campaign where they basically changed an image, you know, where he shook the hand in another angle as opposite to the, of the previous image and then conversion, you know, escalated by 500% or whatever. Uh, you know, I would like to, to, to sort of see the AI do the perfect analysis of why to choose that exact picture. So I think, um, yeah, I think it's adding the, the irrationality and the stupidity of humans <laughs> and, and, the, and also the decision making. Um, that would be my three cents. Yeah, I agree. I will also add to that. I think, I mean, design is also more than just uh, producing. Like it's also a coordinator mm. between different parties in a way. And it's also a method. So, uh, I mean, we will speed up some of the things of maybe creating the graphical parts, but still coordinating and putting that all together. I think design and designers as a big value in that in that way of thinking, a little bit of a spider in the in the web, trying to make people communicate with each other. <laughs> yeah, and I I totally agree. I also think exactly like in those terms that design is more than just the producing, and and I try to see it more as a tool. I don't have too much experience with it. I, I use it for in some senses for text, and um, I mean. The thing you get, you also have to have like a judgment in order to verify that it actually meets the need. And, and, and it's kind of like blunt in a way, AI, when you use it. So you have to be like the, the expert that can say whether or not the output is actually correct and you, and that you can use it. So it speeds up the process in some senses. And uh, this might be like five years from now, everybody is going to be laughing at what we said because then, we're gonna, <laughs> then it might be. We're going to be out of jobs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but in the current state of affairs with what AI is doing right now, I, I find it to be more of a blessing than like a curse um, mm. at, for me or, or what we do, uh, because it can like easily transcribe notes and, uh, you know, give me suggestions for for what to have for an agenda or stuff like that. Um, and also in some senses, maybe like visual components also uh, or, or like trigger material for for. Uh, doing new designs so i'm not too worried about it at this stage and i think now in the beginning also i mean all design teams are understaffed anyway so maybe we'll really <laughs> good level before we start losing jobs yeah but i think like yeah in general i think designers will spend you know less time producing more time directing and perfecting like the i think and also i think like you know where if if we get a world where everyone uses ai and you know looking at some of the articles that's coming out right now, I think we can already sort of see what's AI generated content. It's already heading towards the direction where it's super glossy and very high qualitative, but it also, it's also kind of bland already. Uh, so, so I think, uh, and I think, you know, the, the, the humans I know, <laughs> uh, tend to get very anti 
stuff once it becomes too established. Uh, so, so I think uh, maybe it could actually get some sort of uh, counter backlash where people can spot AI generated stuff so easily that it sort of loses value. And whereas stuff that has humans creating it could potentially add value simply because uh, humans has, have maybe by that point learned to see what is what. Um, mm-hmm. So, but, that, but that's just speculation. But um, I just noticed, you know, people seem to trigger to become anti very easily. <laughs> Amazing. Great. Great answers. And again, great question, Anna. So before we end the podcast, I'd just like to say thank you so much to all of our guests for sharing their thoughts on the topic. So they have been Emil Axelson, who is the Senior Interaction Designer at Electrolux. Marcus Johnson, who is the Head of Surf Design at STIN. Daniel Stridsberg, who is the Co-Founder and Design Director of Rose Studio. And Anna Bernal-Ramos, who is the Design Lead at Dacia. So if you're hiring or looking for new technical roles or looking for a new role in general, feel free to get in touch with us here at Evolution. Or if you or anyone you know would like to be featured on a podcast in the future, you can drop me a message too. So I am Shania Olajukpa and you can find me on LinkedIn or email me at shania.olajukpa at evolution-nordics.com or you can visit us at evolutionjobs.com forward slash UK forward slash Nordics. Thank you again so much to all of our guests and thank you for listening. Hope we can join you next time. And that is the podcast, guys. Great. Amazing. Thank you. No problem. I don't know about you, but I felt like that went really quick. So... (laughs) (laughs) I, mean, I like, enjoyed it. Yeah. That was fun. That was fun. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, it was really interesting to hear what everyone had to say. Obviously, this isn't my field of expertise, so I can't really say much on the topic, but definitely like listening to your thoughts and ideas and experiences. Definitely amazing. Great. Does anyone have any other questions before I let you go and enjoy your evening? No. No, no I don't think so. Not right now. No yeah. problem. Amazing. Nice. Oh. Yep. Yeah. Nice to meet you guys. Nice to meet you. Yeah, same. Same. Amazing. I'll see you all later and again, have a great evening. Thank you so much.